All right. Well, good morning, everybody out there in TV land and <laughs> YouTube, Facebook land. Uh, we are going to be finishing up Deuteronomy chapter 7 today, Lord willing. And uh, we're going to kind of be going from right, right from verse 1 again, because last week the Lord kind of took us on a different path than, than, uh, than what I had intended <laughs> with my notes. Um, and he's always welcome to do so, right? We, we, we love the Lord's presence, and anytime he wants to do something different, we, we allow it and say, Lord, you, you know better than we do. But uh, we still want to be faithful to the Scriptures and make sure that we go through and we cover them. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, the only announcements that I have for everybody is if you go to our webpage, uh, which is briancalvarychapel.org, uh, all of the announcements are going to be posted there. Uh, and the only other announcement besides that is that if you are going to be involved in the women's Bible study, any ladies that are going to be involved in the women's Bible study, uh, please contact my mom and give her your email address so she can uh, email you the materials uh, for the Bible study. So let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you, Father, for this book uh, that you've given us, Lord, this collection of books and writings uh, Lord, passed down over thousands of years, Father, uh, from Moses all the way to us, Lord. Uh, the fact that we have this in our lap is, is uh, a miracle in and of itself, Lord. And when we see the prophecies fulfilled and all the things that you said were going to happen that indeed have happened, Father, uh, and we see the promises uh, in the Old Testament, Father, fulfilled through your Son, Jesus Christ, we glorify you for that, Lord. And, and we know that this book was not just written for uh, us and, and people as a whole, Father, but it was also written for each individual heart, Father, for our personal relationship with you through Christ to be established and to be lived. And so we ask and pray, Father, that you would use it this morning to instruct us, to teach us, and to train us, Lord, and, and that the purpose of that would be to be conforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, that we would allow ourselves to be molded and, and uh, made and chiseled, Father, and broken where we need to be broken, Father, so that we could be more like him, Lord, and be useful for your kingdom and to the service you've called us to be in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So again, uh, Deuteronomy, second law. This is now the second generation uh, of the children of Israel who have been delivered out of the land of Egypt. Of course, the first generation who came out of Egypt and who were at Mount Sinai and who received the law through unbelief, and this is something we're going to reiterate again and again and again, were unable to enter into the promised land. Even though God had delivered them, even though God had brought them out, as he says continually, with a mighty arm and a uh, mighty hand and an outstretched arm, uh, they fell into disbelief. Uh, they were continually grumbling and continually griping, and there was open rebellion, and God put up with that well enough. Uh, but when they got to the point where they came to that point of entering into the promised land, and they said, we don't believe it. We don't believe that it's possible. Uh, God said, well, you're not going to enter into the promised land, though, but your children's gonna, children are going to enter in. So now this second generation uh, are at the point where they're about to enter into the promised land. They're about to cross over the Jordan River and have their first major battle on that side of the Jordan River uh, against, of course, the city of Jericho. And before that, Moses is going back through and reiterating the law to them as well. And it's for the purpose of memory. It's for the purpose of, of reminding them over and over and over again that this stuff is as real as it gets. 
And the things that God has laid out and things that God has said, you must be diligent to obey them because the very foundations of everything that you hope for and all the promises that are given to you are based on your obedience and your continued worship of your, of your God in heaven. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. These seven nations, again, are representations to us of the wickedness of the world, and what Israel conquered militarily, we are to conquer spiritually. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God, and here's the purpose, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then Paul gives us the issue and the situation at hand. This is why you have to have the whole armor of God. This is what you need to understand is happening continually, day by day, all around the world. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Christian is to always have this armor of God on. We are always to be on the offensive when it comes to fighting against the spirit of darkness that is pervasive throughout our entire world. We are always to be on our guard. We are always to be watching. And as the children of Israel were to make absolutely no covenants with these seven nations, but were to utterly destroy them, we have to have the same attitude and the same heart towards darkness and wickedness entering into the borders of our heart and in our life. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And it's a similar thing here, isn't it, to what God is telling the children of Israel through Moses, make no provision for them. He says to them, um, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them or show mercy to them. We need to have the same attitude towards our own flesh. We need to have the same attitude towards sin in our lives. Verses 3 and 4. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18 says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And this is not just a verse for marriage. Uh, you know, we talk about in the Christian church, 
that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The perfect will of God is that a believing man or a believing woman would take for themselves a believing spouse so that, that tr uh, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that dwells in each one of their hearts is going to be the basis and the foundation for their marriage, for their communion, for their union, and then also the basis upon which their home is established and built and the basis upon which their children are raised and how their children are taught. Uh, now, certainly, if you have one believing spouse... Uh, in the home, that's better than none, isn't it? <laughs> that's better than none. And it's a, and it's a beautiful thing uh, when you do see homes where there's one uh, spouse who is a believer and one spouse who is not a believer, and the faithfulness that you see oftentimes in the believing spouse to try to teach their children in spite of that and to also be a witness and a light to their unsaved spouse. And that's a beautiful thing that we see. But God's perfect will God's perfect will for each believer is that we would not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep, uh, in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So Paul's main point here, of course, is that within the church, we should never, never, never allow wickedness. We should never have someone who is claiming to be a brother and is a part of the fellowship who is living in open rebellion against God's word. That cannot stand. That cannot stand. We can't allow that to be. Now, all of us sin. Everybody has sinned. There's nobody that comes to church on Sunday who didn't sin that, that previous week. What we're talking about here is a person who is living an open lifestyle of sin contrary to what God's Word says. But the other part of this verse that's interesting to me is that Paul says, I'm not telling you not to have anything to do with people who are involved in these open sins outside of the church. You're supposed to be a light and a testimony to them. So when we're talking about not being unequally yoked together with people, we're not talking about not being around people who are unsaved. We're not talking about, you know, being Amish, you know what I mean, and going out and living all by ourselves and not having anything to do with the rest of the world. Well, then who's going to bring them the gospel? Who's going to shine the light in those dark places? That's our job. That's what we're called to do. When we talk about being unequally yoked, and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he specifically mentions marriage, we're talking about a union of minds and hearts a union of minds and hearts. If you are a born-again Christian, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, when you are around unsaved people, there's, there's a marked difference in the fellowship that you have with that person than when you're around someone who is a born-again Bible-believing Christian. I don't know about you guys, but many times in, in my travels, in, in the work that I do, I've come around someone and, and, and met them on a job and, and, uh, and began to talk to them just about, you know, fire sprinkler stuff, uh, the reason that I'm there. And, and there's something that, is, that becomes evident. There's something there, and, and invariably, I'll, I'll ask them, or they'll say to me something, or I'll ask them, hey, uh, where do you go to church? Do you go to church? You know, I'll start it like that, and they'll say, yeah, you know, and it's like, I knew you were a Christian. I knew that you were a Christian. My spirit could sense your spirit. There's a very real and palpable thing there. 
Uh, and it's a fellowship that we can have together because we're believers in Jesus Christ that we simply cannot have with someone who's not a believer, who does not have the Spirit of God living in them. And what Moses is saying to this generation of, of, of Israelites is if you start intermarrying with people who are idolaters, invariably what's going to happen is darkness corrupts the light. You know, light is meant to conquer the darkness, but only if there's no provision made for the darkness, only if there's no agreements or deals. The light's job is to go and conquer the darkness, and as long as that's what light is about doing, then the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But if we allow darkness to come in, if we allow there to be a fellowship between light and darkness, ultimately, the darkness is going to corrupt the light. And that's exactly what God is saying to Moses here. Verse 5, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 23, it says this, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And he's talking about when a person is involved in sin and you're helping that person to get away from that sinful lifestyle or get away from a specific sin. And he's saying, be careful. Jude says, be careful to yourselves. Be careful for yourselves. Hate even the garments defiled by the flesh. Don't allow any provision for your own weaknesses while you're trying to help a brother or sister uh, with their uh, with their weaknesses. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And this goes along with that making no provisions for the flesh. Make no provisions for the flesh. There should be nothing in my life, there should be nothing in any of our lives as believers that is so precious to us that we would not be willing to get rid of it, to put it out of our lives if it's leading us down a path to sin. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't care if it's as precious to you as your right eye or your right hand. Your right eye is over here. <laughs> or your right hand. If, if it's causing you to sin, it's not worth it. It's not something that's worth hanging on to. I don't care if it's a relationship. I don't care if it's a thing. I don't care if it's a job. If it is causing you to be pulled away from Jesus Christ, then you need to cut it out of your life. There is to be no provision made for the flesh. There is to be no agreement between the temple of God and the temple of Belial. And it's the exact same thing as he was telling the children of Israel, though for us it's, it's, it's more of a spiritual sense. Uh, verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Isn't that interesting that this is what God says about the church? Because it is very similar to the language that he uses towards the children of Israel. 
You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Here it is, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And here's the reason. You know, first we have, don't do this. Don't make any provision for the flesh. Don't make any agreements with, the, with, with, with idols. Don't make any allowances for that thing in your life. Don't equally, uh, unequally yoke yourselves together with unbelievers. Here's the why. Here's the why. God chose you. God loves you and God chose you and God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Just based on that, how ought our conduct to be in the world that we live in? Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 tells us that we love him because he first loved us. It's because God loves us that we're here today, or you're listening online. It's, it's because of God's love that our lives have been changed, hopefully radically changed and transformed. It's because of God's love for us that we moved away from a path of self-destruction towards a path of following after Him, conforming ourselves into the image of Almighty God and Jesus Christ, His Son, hopefully. Verse 7, the Lord did not set His love on you, or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence. This is something God is going to go on to say to the children of Israel. Remember, we fast forward when they're into the land and uh, during the time of the judges. Remember Gideon, when of course uh, the children of Israel have fallen into idolatry. They've fallen into worshiping of false gods. And so the Midianites, uh, God raises up to oppress them and afflict them. Uh, and the children of Israel begin to cry out, and God raises up Gideon. And I remember Gideon, his testimony is, my family's the least in my tribe, and I'm the least one in my family. Like, literally, God, you could not have chosen a worse person to be a leader, or especially in combat. You know, when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, he is in a wine press threshing wheat. Now, when you thresh wheat, you go up on a, on a hillside and you go to a place where there is a, where there's a breeze, where wind is blowing, so that when you throw the hay up in the air, it'll blow the chaff away. You're separating the wheat from the chaff. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. There's no wind there. And Gideon was doing that because he was hiding from the Midianites. They were hiding because they would come through and just take the things that belonged to the children of Israel. And so God raises up Gideon and God sends him out into battle. And remember, when, when, the, when the men come to fight with Gideon, God immediately starts saying to them, there's too many of you. There's too many. It's like, there's too many of us. What do you mean? There's a few hundred of us. There's a, or, you know, a few thousand of us and the, and the Midianites are beyond number. What do you mean there's too, too few? I don't want you to glory. If you have the victory with this amount of people, you're going to say, by my own arm, I've gained this victory. No, no, no. It has to be evident to everyone that this was me, God says. Everything that we do is to glorify God. It's all for his glory. 
It's all for his glory. There is no room in the kingdom of God for the glorification of the flesh or for the lifting up of one person above another person. There's no room for that in the kingdom. You know, remember the story of, of uh, when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought up to Jerusalem. David is having the Ark brought up, and, and, and as, it's, as it's going up the path on the cart, the, 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 the cart shifts, uh, and uh, I think his name is Uzziah, or, uh, is, is, is that what his name? Uzziah? I think it's something like that. He's afraid that the Ark is going to fall off the cart, and so he reaches out to steady the Ark, and, and God strikes him, and he dies. Because no one was ever, ever, ever to touch the ark. And I remember hearing a preacher talk about that and say, we are never, ever to touch the glory of God. Never, never, never to touch the glory of God. It is all for him. It is all for his, for his glory. And we are to have just this overwhelming sense of thankfulness, of thankfulness that he called me, not because of my, my gifts, not because of my strengths, not because I'm something, not because, well, I really, I, I need a guy like this on my team. He called me because he loved me. And he called me because he uses the foolish things to confound the wisdom of the wise. Verses 12 to 16. Verses 12 to 16. Then it shall come to pass. I skipped a couple verses, didn't I? Verse 9, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which I command you today to observe them. God, of course, pointing out the fact that he is the judge of all the earth, that he is the judge of all the Lord. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God. And, 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 there's, and there's, a, there's a very simple law that is at work in God's economy. He, he rewards those who obey him and who love him. And he will punish those who disobey him and those who do not love him. It's as simple as that. It's a simple equation that has always been and that always will be. On the day of judgment, no flesh is going to glory. No one's going to say that they deserve to get into heaven. It's going to be 100% based on the relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. You have it or you don't have it. It's as simple as that. And to those who love him, he shows mercy. He shows himself faithful. He keeps his covenant for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their face. And of course, that doesn't necessarily happen in this life, but it certainly happens in the next. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Verse 12, then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep, uh, and, keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil and increase your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples and there shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Um, here is the covenant laid out again. If you love and obey me and if you serve and worship me alone, then you will be blessed in every way. 
If you forsake me and my law and serve and worship other gods, then you will be judged just, just as, though na- as those nations are about to be judged. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 5 to 7. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Now, this is Paul speaking to the church. He's talking to Christians. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, because if we partake in these things, we'll be partakers in that judgment as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood, of, uh, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a very, very sobering verse. A very, very sobering verse. (laughs) What does this mean? What does this mean? You know, where is that line? Where is that line in a Christian's life where we can abuse grace to such a point that maybe I'm really not saved or I'm really not a believer. What he says is there's going to be judgment of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? A common thing. He's talking about a believer. He's talking about a person who was saved, who gave their heart to Christ. But then tramples that, tramples that blood as a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. This idea that God's grace gives us license to live our lives however we see fit. And because of the grace of God, we're just forgiven. We're just forgiven. Well, God knows my heart. Well, God knows how. No, 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 no. We've been called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, and we have been commanded by God not to make any provisions for the flesh. We're to flee youthful lusts and all these other things. There is no place for a lifestyle of sin in the heart of a believer. There's no place for that. Now, I am not anyone's judge, right? We are not in the business of judging people. That is not what we are called to do. We are simply called to proclaim the truth of God's word. This is what God's word says. And so, you know, when we, when we communion, we, we, we talk about one of the verses we read, because, because of the seriousness of the table of Christ, a man ought to examine himself. A man ought to examine himself. There has to be a self-reflection that is always taking place in the heart of a believer. Where am I in the faith? Have I, am, am I, have I, and am I continually making my calling and my election sure? When I wake up in the morning, is that the foundation and the basis for everything that I do? That I'm a believer? 
and the choices that I make, is this going to profit me spiritually or is this going to harm me spiritually? It's a very sobering thing. The Bible says we're supposed to be sober-minded and vigilant in the days that we live in. Again, the covenant with the children of Israel. If you do the things I'm commanding you to do, and for the children of Israel, it was physical. You know, it was all material blessings. They were a physical nation. We're a spiritual nation, right? We're, the church is a spiritual nation. We're not some physical nation or some physical city. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He said to Pontius Pilate, if, if it were, then my servants would fight. But as it is, it is not of this world. The promises that God gave to the children of Israel were physical because the promises to them were as a physical nation, an earthly nation. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be a living testimony, an example of a group of people set apart to obey the law of God to the best of their ability and watch and see the blessings that God pours out on them because they obey my laws and compare them to all the other nations of the world who don't obey my laws and my commandments. There was supposed to be that dividing line, the blessing versus the curse. All who are on the side of God and on the side of God's law are going to live and dwell within the blessing. All those who reject God's law and reject God's love and reject God's uh, commandments are going to live on the side of the, of the cursing. They're going to they're experience that part of the curse. And there's that dividing line. Well, for the children of Israel, as Moses is telling them, this is a very physical, material thing. The land in which they live, the cattle that they have, their, their, their offspring, all these things, no sickness, all these things. For the believer, it's a very, very, very different thing. It's 100% spiritual, although God does bless us. Uh, and, and God, you should be thankful every day if you have health. You should be thankful every day if God has blessed you with a good job to make some money and take care of your family. But that's not the blessing we're after. What did Jesus say? Don't worry about where you're going to eat, what you're going to eat, or where you're going to sleep, or where you're going to live, or what you're going to wear. Don't worry about those things. He said the Gentiles run, the, run around and chase after these things. The pagans run around and chase after these things. And God knows that you need them. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Those things will be added to you. The object of us following God is not for some earthly blessing. It's for more of his presence, more of his spirit in our lives. Verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember well that the Lord your God, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You see, this is a supernatural occurrence God's talking about here. He's not going to use their swords and their spears alone, but God supernaturally is going to allow the defeat of their enemies. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. That's awesome. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. 
God's people are not to consider the size of the adversary, but rather the size of our God. Luke chapter 18, verse 27, Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. We are never, ever, ever to consider the size or the immensity or the power of darkness in this world or the darkness or the wickedness in our own heart. Those things, those adversaries that we have going all the way back up to what we're talking about, putting on the armor of God because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual dimensions and all these things. What we are not to be afraid of them. You know, uh, Paul says to Timothy, uh, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, but a spirit of power. The Christian ought not to be going around defeated and afraid. That's not the life of a Christian. What is it? Paul says, to live is Christ and to die, great gain. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? Well, you could die. That's great gain to a believer, Paul says. That's great gain. And he says, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy and kill your flesh and after that can do nothing to you, whether it's a man or whether it's a disease or whatever the case may be. Don't have any fear of that. You have a godly fear. We have a godly fear. Not like we're afraid of God. But, uh, but understanding his awesome power, that's the fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. I love that. And there is nothing that can stand in the way of God's will being accomplished. I love how he tells them, you're not going to be able to destroy these nations all at once, lest the animals, you know, the beasts of the, of the fields and of the mountains, it, you know, in, begin to encroach on your territory and give you all sorts of problems and issues. You just fight the fight. And you let me worry about the timing of the victory. I love that. God says, I'm not going to give you victory all at once. It's going to be little by little. Over time, I'm going to give you victory, and I'm going to give you victory, and I'm going to give you a victory, and I'm going to give you a victory until you look back behind you and go, wow, look at all that the Lord has given me victory over. Don't worry about trying to eradicate all the things, uh, all the wickedness at once, all the darkness at once. God, what do you want me to deal with today? I love that. And God's going to give us the victory in his timing. Verse 25. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Not only does God want the idols of these nations destroyed, but he also does not want his people to covet even the gold and silver associated with them. Nothing that has touched them, nothing that has eluded to them, nothing that has been a part of that, nothing, no aspect of it, no piece of it, no nothing that has to do with the the idolatry of the nations before them does he want his people to be bringing into their homes. Again, excuse me, Jude chapter 1, verse 23, uh, but others stay with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There's that verse again. Hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. There should be no whimsical thoughts in the believer's mind about, remember the good old days? Remember the good old days? Oh, well, we used to do this, and we used to do this, and we used to do this, and, you know, oh, boy, that was, you know, it was terrible. Oh, but that was, there should be none of that in the heart of a believer. 
There should be nothing in us where we're seeking after or, or having some sort of, uh, uh, of desire for or even an affection for the things that were a part of the death, <laughs> the things that were a part of our bondage, you know, any of that stuff. Put all aspects of it out of our lives. For 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 17, again, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, and I heard another voice, voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Interesting. Here's what Matthew Henry said. There was such a covenant and communion established between God and Israel as was not between him and any other people in the world. Shall they by their idolatries dishonor him who had thus honored them? Shall they slight him who had thus testified his kindness for them? Shall they put themselves upon the level with other people when God had thus dignified and advanced them above all people? Had God taken them to be a special people to him and no other but them? And will they not take God to be a special God to them and no other but him? Because of what God had done for them, they ought to have been so grateful and in their gratitude, shown diligence and a pursuing after the covenants of God, the commandments of God, of doing all that God had commanded them to do and living within that blessing. The same goes for us. The same goes for the heart of the believer. Understanding God's nature that he punishes rebellion and rewards obedience, we ought to live our lives soberly and reverently in fear because once again, his great judgment is going to be poured out on man's rebellion and wickedness, and we are the ones that he has called upon to sound the warning. We are that chosen people. We are that holy nation. We are that royal priesthood who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we ought to take just as much consideration as was expected of the children of Israel to make sure that our lives are set aside for the service of the king and not to serve ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you for these words. We thank you how relevant it is even to us, Father, though we are under a better covenant, though we are under the covenant of grace by the blood of Jesus Christ, Father, we pray that we would still have the same sober hearts and minds, Father, to be diligent to obey what your word tells us to do uh, and to not do the things that your word has commanded us not to do, Father, to seek to live our lives to the best of our ability in accordance with your word so we can experience all the blessings that you've set aside for us, Father. Uh, Lord, we ask and pray that you would show us if there be in any, of our, in any part of our hearts, Lord, a wicked way or a wicked thing or something that is dear to us, Father, that's causing us to stumble and fall, Lord, that we would be, have the willingness and the obedience in our hearts to pluck them out and to throw it away from us, Father, so that we could have a closer walk with you. We thank you and we praise you, Lord God, for all that you're doing. Though we don't understand your ways, and we don't understand all of your will, Father, and we don't understand your timing so often. We pray that you would help us to be a people that trusts in you, Father, and puts all of our hope in you. And when we see the things happening around us, Lord, we're not dismayed and we're not made, made to be afraid and we're not going around in fear, Father, but we boldly uh, are going continually out into the world that you've put us in, Lord, to tell people about Jesus Christ, to shine that light, uh, to always be the ambassadors of the truth that you've called us to be, Father. We love you. And we praise you and we thank you, Lord. I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters throughout this week. I pray that you'd watch over and protect them, Father. I pray that you'd cause your face to shine upon them, Lord, and that they would experience 
the power of your love and your grace, Father, and the blessings of your hand upon their lives as they obey you and as they do the things that you've called them to do, Father. Help their hearts to be sensitive to your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.